Welcome back to Bible Time, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. It's the continuation of the thought from verse 1 where he said, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Father, in Jesus' name, please teach us from your word this afternoon. And Lord, I pray that your will would be done with this message, that you would bless people with it. Lord, that you would bless me and help me to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Help me, Lord God, to live, Lord, what I preach. Help me, Lord God, to have power to preach, and Lord God, to have a clear mind, a sound mind, Father, in Jesus' name. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. In Jesus' name, amen. First Thessalonians 3, 2 here is um, the continuation again of verse 1, which ended with a semicolon. It continues the thought and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God. So the purpose or the reason, the motivation behind sending Timotheus was that they could no longer forbear. And we looked at that in the message, can you forbear? What can you forbear? How much can you stand to see the world go to hell? Will you enjoy your life? And I pray and I pray the Lord will use that sermon in your life or in the lives of those that it gets to that we would turn from our um, apathy and our indolence and get active for God in this life. Now, the thing here that they did when they could no longer forbear because Paul could not get there. Paul tried once and again, but he could send Timothy. So he sent out Timothy. Now, um, a lot of people would think automatically that Timothy is some kind of lesser Christian because um, Paul sent him and he went at Paul's request. And a lot of times we get this whole hierarchy idea in our minds, this corporate hierarchy, and that's not the case. God gives authority in the church. But that does not change the reality of the equality of the believers. And we'll see that here as we study. Chapter 1 dealt primarily with the success of the suffering church of Thessalonica. We saw that all through chapter 1 where he says there, So that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. So there we saw that the uh, the success of the suffering church in chapter 1. Chapter 2 primarily dealt with the success of the apostolic ministry. And so the chapter 1 gave us the success of the suffering church and set forth a pattern of how other churches can also have success. And chapter 2 gave us the success of the apostolic ministry and gave us a pattern set forth by that for how other ministries can also have success. Chapter 3 now deals primarily with the desire for future constant future constant continued success and has as its expressed means to reach this goal of continued success the establishment and comfort of this fledgling church of Thessalonica and we can see that in our text it says in sent Timotheus our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your 
your faith. It's a great thing to get a good start, but it's a sorrowful thing to have a bad ending when you've had a good start. You can have a great start. Imagine a marathon where you have to run 26.2 miles and you start out running fast and you're at the head of the pack and you're beating everybody and you're running down the road. You can't even see anybody behind you. It's just you and the finish line. And about halfway through the race, you start to feel pain that's not normal. And next thing you know, you're laying on the side of the road while everybody else runs past you and you lay there holding your leg. And you had done so good, but it didn't do any good because um, you got passed up because of your pain. You stopped. You couldn't keep going. So the success of this church and the success of the ministry that God used to launch this church are two things that are held forth in First Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. But in chapter 3, God begins to deal through the Apostle Paul with the idea and the concept of the longevity of the success, continued success, a carrying forward of the success of the church at Thessalonica. Praise the Lord for the early success. What do you do you know what we call someone who has a great start and a lousy finish? We say it was a flash in the pan. Just a flash in the pan. And that phrase, I believe, if I can discern it correctly, goes all the way back to when they used muzzle loaders and they would take some powder and dump it down the end of the barrel of their rifle and they would take a little cotton or something like that and put it on the end of the barrel and put a little lead ball on the cotton and take their rod out of the end of their muzzle loader and tamp that bullet all the way down against the powder and then they would pull the rod out and put it back in its holder and then they would take and level the rifle and point it the direction they were going to shoot and take their powder horn and tip it up and drizzle just a little bit just a few grains of powder in the pan right there at the base of the barrel and then they would have a flint on their old flint locks, or they would have a fuse on the old match locks, but on the flint locks, they would have a flint and it would have a piece of steel right there next to the pan, the powder pan. And when you pulled the trigger, it would release the hammer with the flint on it and it would come down with a snap. And that snap would result in a spark when that flint hit the steel and that spark would light the pan. The powder in the pan would go foof and just do a little foof and it would flash and smoke. And then that fire would hopefully light the fire in the base of the barrel, light the powder in the base of the barrel behind the bullet. And that powder would go boom. And out the end of the barrel would come the bullet, the little ball of lead that would go flying through the air and hopefully hit the target that it was aimed at. But if you went to all that work and all that labor and you pull the trigger and it goes snap, foof, and there's no bam, that's called a flash in the pan. All you had was a flash in the pan. You looked impressive. You looked like you were going to hit the target. You looked like you were going to get there, but all there was was a flash in the pan and no boom. And boy, can that be awkward because now you have a loaded gun. And what if you pull the gun down and then it goes boom? What if it's smoldering? So that can be an awkward situation. Now what do you do? Well, you can try and reprime the pan and put a little more powder in the pan and pull the trigger and snap and foof and 
No boom. Now what do you do? Well, you must wait until you're pretty sure that it's not going to go boom. Because if you start working on it, well, it's still smoldering. It might go boom in your hand. And that'd be bad. So you have to wait until you're sure it's not going to go off. And then you have to figure out, is the little orifice plugged between the pan and the back of the barrel? What is happening that's keeping this gun from shooting? And the and it can be quite a process. And if you know any of my family's history with the muzzleloader my dad had, you know just how frustrating that could be because all that gun knew how to do was make a flash in the pan. And God here is wanting to move on. We've had initial success here in chapter one that's been praised. We have the success of the evangelism of the apostolic ministry here through the apostle Paul. All of this should be emulated. All of this is good. But now Paul says here, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left to Athens alone. They were concerned about that fledgling little church. They were worried that those that had started so well would fall away in the temptations and the persecutions and the tribulations that were besetting them. So he said, we thought it good to be left to Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Now we're going to dive into who this guy Timothy is that got picked for this job. And in looking at Timothy and looking at who he is, we're going to see how he was qualified to establish the church and to comfort the church. And in doing so, we're going to see what Paul means by establishing and comforting the church, because Paul is the one that established and comforted Timothy. Timothy. So as we look at Timothy in some detail, we're going to go through several high points through the books of first and second Timothy here today. And we're going to see how Paul established and comforted Timothy and then how he charged Timothy to do the work of the ministry so that then we can understand how Timothy would have carried out his job, his task that he was sent to do. He was sent by the Apostle Paul all the way from Athens and about somewhere down in the middle south of Greece, all the way back up to the northeast corner of Greece, to the little backwater town of Thessalonica. And the purpose was to establish and comfort you concerning the faith. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy comes right after 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and we will study these epistles, Lord willing, after we finish 1 and 2 Thessalonians. If we can um, walk within the Spirit and follow the Lord and be established in our faith and not be soon moved by the afflictions that accompany us and not just be a flash in the pan ministry ourselves, Lord willing, we'll be able to follow Jesus and have a long-lasting work that we do until the Lord calls us home. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 2, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So the first thing that we can see here here is that Paul claimed Timothy as his son in the faith. And from comparing other scriptures, we can see that Paul does that to those that he has led to Christ. He spoke to the Galatian church and said, my little children of whom I travail in birth, 
earth until Christ be fully formed in you. And there he called the Galatian church, my little children, the people that he had led to Christ. And so it looks as if from this, that Timothy had been directly led to Christ by the apostle Paul. And if it was not that Paul had directly led him to Christ, Paul was involved in Timothy's conversion. And we'll find a little bit more about Timothy, Timothy's history as we look at, as we look at this man, Timothy here, look at verse three, he says, and I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. So we can see here that Timothy was a spiritual son of Paul that he was begotten in the Lord by the Apostle Paul, that he was led to the Lord through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and that he was a faithful and reliable messenger, that he could be trusted with important jobs. He could be left in one place while Paul went to another place, and Paul would fully expect and be justified in expecting it that Timothy would do all that Paul had asked him to do and complete the job that he had been given. And then we look at verse 13 of chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says here to Timothy, and, and actually this is in verse 12, let no man despise thy youth. Let no man despise thy youth. So here we find that as Timothy was ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ, Timothy was a young man. He was not old. He wasn't a young boy, but at this point, he was a young man. So we find here a young preacher boy. Paul was a young man, and here in 1 Timothy, from the from the salutations and from the closing statements that um, Paul gives, especially in 2 Timothy, it appears that this is towards the end of Paul's ministry that he's addressing Timothy as a young man, which means he was a preacher boy. Now, we know that whenever somebody gets it's really good and good and old they start thinking that 30 year olds and 40 year olds are young men and they'll talk about them as in their youth and we know that and that's but listen to me paul wasn't that old Paul, as far as we can tell, we um, there's everybody's best guess at it, but he probably didn't even live to be 60 years of age. So Timothy here was a young man. And when Timothy started following Paul and being engaged in the ministry and the work of Paul, he was probably still very likely in his teens, a very young man and a very young preacher boy, but nevertheless a preacher and had a powerful ministry at the same time. Look at verse 14. He says here to Timothy, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Now we know also that Paul laid hands on Timothy from second Timothy. It tells us that. So Timothy was ordained to preach. So here's a young preacher boy that has manifested faithfulness. He's met the qualifications and he's been ordained to preach. And now as a young man, he sent hundreds of miles. I can't remember um, how far it would be. I hadn't, didn't study it out in this particular session for this, but it was many, many, many miles from Athens to Thessalonica, though it was still in the area of Greece. And here he was sent across a pagan nation full of persecution, full of peril. And he was sent to Thessalonica to establish a church and comfort the church as a young preacher boy. 
Now that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's a big job. How would you like to be 16, 17 years old and get sent 200 miles away from your pastor to go and establish a brand new church that was just getting started and comfort them concerning their faith and to do it in a place full of persecution and trouble? That's kind of a scary job. That's a big responsibility. But that's the job that the Apostle Paul gave Timothy that Silvanus agreed with the Apostle Paul in. And they sent Timothy and separated him from them and sent him with this great big job. Now listen to me. You don't get big jobs till you're faithful in little jobs. The Bible says he that is faithful in little will be given much. And Timothy had obviously proved himself faithful in little to be given so much. Now, I also have to wonder, and I don't want to get into speculation, but um, in the way that we can just think this through, think about the facts. Paul was driven out of Thessalonica after three Sabbath days, reasoning with the Jews. And those new believers had been saved, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were left without a preacher. And they were left with no one that that had dug deeply into the word of God. They were just brand new saved Christians, and they had no one to teach them. And Paul says in our text that he endeavored more than once. He says time and again to come unto you, but Satan hindered me. And he's, he there mentions that he is unable and was unable to get to the church. Now, in this case, we find that, as we studied earlier, whenever he went to the other towns like Berea, the Jews from Thessalonica persecuted him unto strange cities and drove him from them. And he'd gone all those miles to Athens before he stopped getting chased by the Jews in Thessalonica. He made it all the way across the country. Athens is in the south-central part of Greece. Thessalonica is in the northernmost border of Greece, all the way up where Alexander the Great would come from, who wasn't even really Greek, to be exact, in his original um, family. But in any case, all the way up there, almost by the Black Sea there, is where Thessalonica is in Greece. And these Jews had chased Paul all the way across Greece. And whenever they finally stopped chasing Paul and Paul tried to go back, he couldn't. Every time he tried, he was stopped. Satan hindered him and they prayed and they prayed and they got an idea. We're going to send the preacher boy all the way back across Greece through those cities where they were angry with us, through the cities where they yelled at us, through the cities where they stoned us and persecuted us and beat us and the, whatever else they did. I don't believe that there's an account of them being stoned in between Athens and Thessalonica, but whatever persecutions they suffered... They said, we're going to send Timotheus all the way back, and we're going to send him back to his city. By the way, we've got no Facebook here, no no internet, no email, no cell phones. We're going to send him back to a place where we don't even know if there is still a church. Because these guys might have all gotten run off. They might have all gotten killed. They might have all gotten reconverted to Judaism and faltered in their faith. And to this job full of danger and full of responsibility was assigned the young preacher boy, Timothy. What a job. 
And if he got there and there was a church, he was to establish them concerning their faith and to comfort them concerning their faith. What if he got back and they recognized him? Maybe this was one of the reasons that Paul and Silvanus decided Timotheus should go because he was a preacher boy. And later in Timothy's life and later in Paul's career, Paul would tell him, let no man despise thy youth. It was very common for the older men to overlook the younger men and they would, in those cultures, the older men would speak and younger men would be silent. So it was a very common thing to overlook a young man. And so maybe whereas Paul was on high alert, everybody was on high alert for Paul, instead, um, Timothy was just the little boy that was with Paul. He was the little preacher boy that poured water on the hands of Paul. But he got trusted with a lot more than a servant's job here. Now, if you can't make application to this, I don't know what to tell you. There's all kinds of application in here. There's so much of it, I can't hardly tell you which way to go with it. Apply it to your own heart. Are you faithful? Are you a servant of God and of his servants? Are you living in such a way that you could have a job like this? If you're young, by the time you're a teenager in 16, 17, 18, 19, are you living in a way that can be done like this? If you're older, are you living in a way that you could be trusted with such a mission, such a job? Look at 2 Timothy 1.5, and we'll look see a little bit about Timothy's family. 2 Timothy 1.5 here, Paul says, When I call to remembrance, he says, I am uh, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. Verse 5, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. So Timothy came from a godly grandmother and a godly mother. His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice doubtless taught Timothy the scripture as a child and Timothy had applied himself and we can see that as well. Um, If we look at uh, verse 15 of chapter 3, it says here um, in verse 15, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He tells Timothy, stick to the stuff. Continue in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, um, he says, which are able able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And we'll look at more of that later as we study um, this man Timothy, and that's the title of the lesson today, this man Timothy. As we study this man, Timothy, uh, we'll see a little bit more of that. Now, Timothy had temptations to battle. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul tells Timothy, flee also youthful lusts. So not only did, did Timothy have to face temptations, but Timothy had to face the temptations of youth. Many people will say that teenagers go through a rebellious stage, and they'll say it as if that's a law that every teenager has to rebel. Look up at me right now if you're here and you're not past your teens yet. The world says you have got to rebel. 
The world says if you're going to be a real teenager, you've got to get mad at your parents, think that they're stupid, think that you know more than everybody else. You've got to go taste liquor and try at least smoke one or two cigarettes. You've got to try out some drugs and you've got to try out some promiscuity and some fornication and some idolatry. And you need to read some books that tell you about other people's idols and false religions so that you know things that your mom and dad don't know so that you can be smarter than your mom and dad. That's the, what the world thinks that a person has to have throughout their teenage years. But here, listen to me today. Timothy was a teenager too. And Timothy's teenage years were productive years for the kingdom of heaven. What made the man Timothy the man Timothy? It was the boy Timothy. It was the child Timothy. It was the young person Timothy. It was the teenager Timothy that knew the Holy Scriptures and that continued in the Holy Scriptures. You don't have to have a bad testimony to have a good testimony. Do you hear me today? Listen up. You do not have to go and try the world to have a powerful testimony. Met a man a couple of weeks ago or so that said, oh, I've got a powerful testimony. And he started telling me about all his sin that he had committed. There ain't nothing powerful about your sin. Now, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And I thank God for in my own testimony of the sin and the miry clay that God took me out of and rescued me from. But listen to me today. You do not need to sin to be a good preacher. You do not need to sin to have a powerful testimony. Timothy here has a testimony. There is not one other person in Paul's evangelistic band that had the honor of two epistles written to him. Titus is the only other individual in the evangelistic band that got his own epistle. Philemon is a man from a church that got the honor of an epistle from the apostle Paul. But Timothy got two epistles written to him and the commendations and the love and the endearment and the the blessings that Paul um, heaped upon Timothy are unlike any others that he he spoke to any other person. Timothy is mentioned over and over and over and over again by Paul. Timothy had a fruitful life. Timothy had a fruitful ministry and Timothy did not have to live in sin to do it. And as far as biblical record goes, he didn't. As far as biblical record, he stayed clean. Paul said, flee also youthful lusts. This ought to be your desire to be used of God, to be holy before God, to keep yourself clean, to know the scriptures, to be effective for the Lord Jesus Christ. Make your teenage years your best years for Christ. You will never have more time than when you're a teenager. Oh, I know it doesn't seem that way, but why are teenagers always bored? Because the clock moves slower for teenagers. 
It just does. You'll figure that out as you get older. Your seconds last longer than an older man's seconds. You have more time. You have more space on your hard drive to fill up. You have more things that you can save to your memory banks. You have more ability to memorize scripture now than you ever will. That's no excuse for older people to not try and memorize. But as a young person, you have your, as they say, your whole life ahead of you. Make it count. Make every moment count. Here's this young man, young preacher boy, Timothy, getting sent across Greece to establish and comfort a fledgling church in the face of persecution. He didn't get there overnight. We're going to see that as we go on. Let's keep moving here. So there's three things that Timothy is called in 1 Thessalonians <coughs> Excuse me. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer. So it, in, the, in calling Timothy our brother, there's two purposes for that. And as in the outset, the beginning of this epistle and throughout this epistle, the equality of the believers is set forth. The equality of the believers, that means that every Christian is equally valuable before God. The old widow, the boy in the sound booth, the bus driver that drives the church bus, the bus the church clean, cleaning lady that takes the trash out between services, the choir director, the pianist, the pastor behind the pulpit, there are no super saints. Every Christian is equal in the sight of God in value. Not all jobs are equal. Now, that kind of bothered me when we did that lesson that I didn't get to bring that out enough, but here we get to bring it out some because there's three things Timothy is called here. The first one is our brother, and that establishes his equality. The second one, a minister of God, will establish his authority and his jurisdiction. And the third one, our fellow laborer, will establish his habit and show his lifestyle, <coughs> his work ethic. And these are the things that set him apart. His, the, the name of brother makes him an equal. The name of minister gives him an authority. The sheriff of our county, we live in Wright County, Missouri. The sheriff of Wright County is not more of an American than any other American. He is equal. He gets one ballot at the ballot box on November, in November on the election day. He gets one ballot. He gets to throw one vote, just like the poor lady down the street and the poor man around the corner, the black man, the red man, the white man. It doesn't matter who you are, how rich you are in America, you get one vote. And that goes back to our Declaration of Independence that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. So here is the equality of the brethren. This also lifts Timothy to an equal status. As a young man, I remember um, being a pastor's kid. I grew up as a pastor's kid. I would go into some circles and I would be treated with great respect because I was a pastor's kid. And I would be held up like I was um, something more than others. And I grew to disdain that. I knew I wasn't. I knew I was no better, and in a lot of ways, in a lot of places, it really frustrated me because, the, because I couldn't just be a kid. 
And I couldn't just play games with the other kids and stuff because people were um, wanting to put me in positions and have me lead things I didn't want to lead and put me in a responsibility I didn't want. Now, part of that, too, was that I was shirking responsibility and I didn't want the responsibility and all that. And I just wanted to play and goof off. And that's my problem. I should have got over that. The other extreme that would happen was as a pastor's kid, listen up, I would go somewhere and I was just a kid. And I got the palm in the face treatment from people. Oh, if you're, it was, it was time and rank, time and rank. And so you'd go in a place and they're like, oh, all you little kids sit over there in the corner while us important adults talk about stuff. And children should keep their mouths shut and listen around their elders. And they should be respectful, but there's an extreme it can be taken to. And there's a hierarchy, a pecking order in most churches that's ungodly and it shouldn't be there. And both of those, both of those extremes are obnoxious. Timothy was a brother, no more and no less, equal in value before God. By the way, all you time and graders out there that, that think because you're 50 and your pastor's only 25 that you get to boss him around... Most of the time, in my experience, those 50-year-olds haven't been saved as long as the pastor they're trying to boss around. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the pastor's always been, only been saved a few years, and that guy's been saved for 40. That does happen, too. But it's just, just an irony. Just, it was kind of funny, actually, <coughs> being saved very young. I had a man tell me once, um, he, he rolled his shoulders back. I was trying to share the gospel. I was going door to door. And this man rolled his shoulders back and said, ah, young man, I've been saved for, I think he said, um, I've been saved for 30 years. And I looked at him and I said, sir, with all due respect, I've been saved for 33 he about fell over. He didn't know what to do. Listen, time and grade has nothing to do with it. It's the, it's the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It doesn't have to do with when you got saved, how old you are, what your experience is. I had a, one old guy told me one time as I was ministering, and he had a disagreement with the way that I was ministering and was uh, very much unhappy with what I was doing and telling me so. And he told me, he says, listen, you and I are going to keep having problems because I'm basing, I'm coming from the perspective of my experience and you're coming from the perspective of the Bible. Gulp. What perspective are you supposed to come from? You're supposed to come from the Bible. Years, and boy, we're getting ahead of ourselves getting into that. So here, no more, no less value before God. The old man in the church house who's been saved 60 years and he's led 10,000 people to Christ and he can still preach the socks off everybody in the room has no greater value before God than the little eight-year-old boy that has turned from his sins and been redeemed by the blood of the lamb and has turned from a life of his sin to follow Jesus Christ. There's no time and grade in this situation. Jesus said the kings of the earth rule over one another and they jockey for position to give it the paraphrase because I can't remember it exactly. But he said the kings of this earth, they struggle for power and prominence. He says it shall not be so among you. He that would be greatest among you, let him be the least. He that would lead, let him be your servant, he said. 
So here, by saying our brother, Timothy, we're sending our brother, Timothy. He brings Timothy up from just a young boy to an equal level of brother. And he brings Timothy down from the servant of the great and illustrious apostle Paul, the reverend Timothy down to the level of brother and it levels the playing field and it takes all the junk out right at the start. He's not less than you. He's not greater than you. So that word brother is very important in bringing about the equality. But secondly, he calls Timothy minister of God, minister of God. And here is where authority comes in. Excuse me, go to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1.12 says, um, Paul speaking here, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. The first aspect that you need to understand about ministry of God and a minister of God is that only God can pick a minister of God. And that when God makes a man a minister of God, that man is commissioned and chosen by God. So when Paul called Timothy, our our brother, And then he called him a minister of God and a minister of God. He took that little preacher boy and he said, this boy, this young man, he didn't call him that. He called him a minister of God. He says, this man, Timothy, is a minister of God. He has been chosen by God, put into a ministry by God. Go to 1 Timothy 3 and we'll see some requirements for the ministry. Speaking specifically here of the office of a bishop, which is that of the pastor. It says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now, before we can go on there, I challenge anyone to find scripture that can back up a Nicolaitan hierarchy, a corporate superstructure that you can assign this word bishop to biblically. You show me from the Bible where it uses the word bishop as having authority over other pastors of other churches, and I might listen to you, but if you are using that word without biblical background, and you are, there is no scripture to back up such a position. If that is the way that you want to use the word bishop and make it as some kind of ruler over pastors, you have got no Bible to stand on and you have erred from the faith. That is way out there. But the Bible is very clear about the office of the bishop and what it should do here as, and it parallels it with that of the pastor. Want to get me a drink of water, please, would you? <coughs> Struggling. So God has requirements for the minister. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. Thank you. The husband of one wife. As far as we know, Timothy was not married. And that was not to forbid marrying. The Bible forbids those that forbid marrying and says that those that will forbid marrying are false prophets. That's what Peter, the first apostle, supposedly first apostle, said that those that forbid marry, marrying are false prophets. So there goes your celibacy of the so-called priesthood. If you're a celibate and you claim biblical or church authority to be a celibate, you're a false prophet. 
So Timothy here, um, in the ministry already, as a preacher boy, was an unmarried preacher boy. Some people will take this text and say that this means that a preacher has to be married. They can, if that's how they feel like they've got to live, then I can't argue too hard with them other than it just doesn't hold out with the rest of scripture. The husband of one wife here, he cannot be a polygamist. That's the the most plain thing. And we cannot get embroiled in every detail. This we got to keep moving. This is a survey. He cannot be a polygamist. He cannot be divorced and remarried because the Bible says um, that whenever you're married, that God hath joined you together he hath the residue of the spirit and that if you marry another you commit adultery and that your wife or your husband who you left is still living so you cannot be the husband of one wife and be divorced and remarried Um, it says you're vigilant sober and we'll study that out more when we get there we're not we we cannot get bogged down here help me lord of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Um, I will say there on the husband of one wife, awful hard for a lady to fill that role. You cannot be a woman pastor, a woman bishop, a woman elder in a church unless you're in a false church because God's churches have male bishops, male elders, male pastors, period. End of story. Now it says here, one that ruleth well his own house. Now I know these people think mama ought to wear the britches, but there it is again. He rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Just a caveat here. If you say that he has to be the husband of one wife and means that he has to be married, then you must also say he has to have children. (coughs) We'll study that out more. When we get there, Um, but that would exclude any man who cannot have children, which is not accurate. Um, Verse five, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Look at verse six, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So this tells you that when Paul was um, laying hands on Timothy to ordain him and the presbytery, which was used, that's a word that was used to describe the gathering of the men of the church to pray over Timothy and send him out. It was not some kind of synod. All that stuff's extra biblical. Love you guys if you want to do that, but it's not in the Bible. So here, this laying on of hands of Timothy took place after he was confirmed by the Apostle Paul to not be a novice, yet he was probably a lower teen when this happened. Not a novice has nothing to do with your physical age. It has to do with your spiritual maturity, which does take some spiritual age and some physical age of some sort. Some age from the time that you've been saved and some time for testing and proving. It says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. <coughs> <coughs> We're going to skip on down through this. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And it says, wives must be grave, not slander, slander, sober, faithful in all things. Now, um, 1 Timothy 4.11 
Paul tells Timothy, these things command and teach. These things command and teach. So while Timothy was brother Timothy, Timothy was charged by God through the apostle Paul to command and to teach. And here we have God gives authority. God puts a man into the ministry. God has requirements for the man and the, of the ministry. God gives authority with to the man with the ministry. 1 Timothy 4.13 shows us that God gives us responsibilities and disciplines with the ministry. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy property may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So here are the responsibilities of the ministry. In 2 Timothy 1.6, we have that mention of Paul laying hands on um, Timothy. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. And then we have in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Timothy had responsibilities. He had disciplines that were part of his daily life, reading, exhortation, doctrine, study of the word of God, prayer. Um, Then we see also that God claims his ministers, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. But thou, O man of God. So this young preacher boy was called, O man of God by Paul. Man of God. Man of God means a man, first of all. You cannot be a man of God if you are not a man. Isn't that basic? Does that make sense? You got that? Everybody got that? If you're not a man, you will never be a man of God. I don't care what how tight your britches are. You're not going to be a man of God unless you're a man. God doesn't deal in transgenderism. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Timothy was not some effeminate, mealy-mouthed, limp-wristed, slap-happy little boy wandering around blowing his bubble gum, flirting at the girls. This teenage boy was a man of God. Do you hear me today? Hallelujah. A man of God. It's time. We need some men of God in this nation. And I don't care if they're 13 years old. If they're a man of God, they're a man of God. And we need some men of God in our day. Whether they're 13 or 60, we need some men of God. God claims his ministers. Now this sets him apart. Our brother Timothy makes him equal and part of the body, part of the family of God. The man of God, Timothy, sets him apart. It puts the sheriff badge on him. So while he is equal with the church he is going to, he has the title of man of God, which comes with authority and responsibility and a ordination from Almighty God. Next, we'll see in 2 Timothy 1, that God appoints his ministers to preach. Verse 11. 
whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. He also said, he says he was appointed a preacher and look at second Timothy four two. preach the word. He says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Listen to me. I'll tell you one thing. I am sick to death of, and I don't think I'm alone in it. I believe God is sick to death of a bunch of men standing up in pulpits who are not ministers of God and talking and giving little talks and giving little speeches. It's a good little talk. Yeah. God said, preach the word. And we need some ministers who will preach the word today. And old preacher boy, little preacher boy Timothy came up there and listened to me today. The scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem would have sneered at little Timothy. The Jews at Thessalonica didn't even bother with little Timothy. He walked right past them and he lay, and he walked right to the church there at Thessalonica. And we're going to find out in Second Thessalonians, he did his job. He established that church by the grace of God in the, and he established them and he comforted them in their faith. And we find that church growing and flourishing and being charged by God to stand fast in the things that they had been taught. Hallelujah for a man of God. Praise God for the man of God. 2 Timothy 3.15, we're going to find the furnishing of the man of God. When God gives a ministry, God gives the furnishings. God gives what the ministry needs. Does that mean he gives them a speaker and a computer and a mixer and an internet to get podcasts up on? Not necessarily. Most people in the centuries gone by have never even dreamed such things were possible. But the furnishings of the man of God are here in verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Here he tells Timothy, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And he tells him, listen, Timothy, here is your furnishings. Here is what you need to set up business, set up shop. You don't have to have a fancy church house. You don't have to have a PA system. You don't have to have anything but the Bible. The furnishings of the man of God are the word of almighty God. You can tell a man of God from a man of learning when the man stands up and speaks. If the man has a bunch to say about books and authors and opinions and Hebrew and Greek and all this stuff, you're talking to a man of learning. But if that man gets up and he gives you Bible and he gives it with power and authority and unction and utterance and God deals with you and you can see that there is power in the word of God, you are dealing with a man of God. Because the man of God only needs the Bible. Are these other things useful? Are PA systems useful? Absolutely. This ministry would be limited to these four walls if it wasn't for this microphone and cable and stand and computer and mixer that are getting all of this onto the internet. All of these other things can be useful and can be used. But the ministry is not in PA systems and carpet and pews and pulpits. The ministry is in the Word of God and in the preaching of the Word of God. We have gotten so far in this nation from 
from ministry, it's not even funny. We call everything ministry. Somebody says, oh, I've got a ministry. I say, oh, wow, really? You've been out of jail about three months. That's pretty amazing. You've got a ministry already. Yep. I went down to the church down here and I have a, um, what would they even call that? A rehabilitation ministry. I've got a addicts ministry. I have a drugs anonymous, alcoholics anonymous. I'm helping people get right. And we meet on Thursdays and I get on right and I've got this ministry. Listen to me today. A ministry doesn't have to have curriculum. A ministry doesn't have to have anything but the word of God. A true ministry has the word of God. A false ministry can have everything, but it won't have the word of God. And the only thing that we're interested in this nation is a 501c3 tax-exempt status, a website, and business cards with our name on it, chairs, a building, people that come, and a tithe box, and money in the bank account, and a checkbook, and maybe even a car that goes with it. But the word of God is gone from our nation. And because of that, I submit to you the raw reality is that the ministry, the ministry of God is gone from this nation and men of God are few and far between. Oh, we've got lots of ministers, but very few ministers of God. Second Timothy four, five, God gives a watch to the ministry, but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. The ministry of God is maintained in a secret place of prayer. God gives the watch to the ministry. God gives a work to his ministries in the same verse. Do the work of an evangelist. Listen to me today. We are full up. We are full up to the gizzard and overflowing with unevangelistic ministry. We have children's ministries that don't preach the word. We have addict ministries that don't preach the word. We have college kid ministries that don't preach the word. Oh, we have little feel good talks and we have little um, self-help stuff and we have accountability partners and we have buddy buddy systems and all this stuff, but we don't have the preaching of the word of God. God gives a work to his ministers and the work of God's ministers is the work of the evangelist. The work of carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. He says there, make full proof of thy ministry. If your ministry does not get the gospel to people, it is not a God-honoring ministry. End of story. But here this man, Timothy, he did the work of an evangelist, this preacher boy, Timothy. And then in the minister of God, and this is really the bulk of the messages right here in this ministry part. We'll see the fellow laborers next. But as we wrap up the ministry segment here, God delivers his ministry ministers. Go to 2 Timothy 3.12. I'm sorry, that's not the right verse. Well, maybe it is. Yep, it is. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Go to 4.16. And Paul says here, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So God delivers his ministers. God will 
stand with his ministers when all men will forsake them. And all men will. And people will persecute God's ministers. But God will stand with his ministers. So Timothy was called our brother. He was called and our fellow laborer here. He was called and minister of God. And then thirdly, and our fellow laborer. Now throughout all of this, we've been lacing through it these two aspects of the ministry that Timothy was sent to do. To establish you concerning your faith and to comfort you concerning your faith. So we won't even have much to say about those when we get there because we basically covered them. We'll just touch them and be done. So here our third part, our fellow laborers and or and our fellow laborer. There's three different aspects to the labor of Timothy. The first is in the ministry, which we've already covered in detail. The second aspect of a fellow laborer is in daily mundane tasks. Look at 2 Timothy 4. And verse 9, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. So he's still getting told, go there, come here, do this, do that. And in the daily grind of life, he's a fellow laborer with Paul. Look at verse 13. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. He tells Timothy, I want you to go get my stuff and bring it to me. Wait a second, Paul. I'm a man of God not on your life. He was all too happy to go and do it because he was a fellow laborer. He was not only a brother, he was a minister of God, which gave him authority, but he was not only a minister of God with authority and responsibility, he was also a fellow laborer. (coughs) He was not afraid to get his hands dirty for God. He was a fellow laborer in the daily tasks. In verse 21, he says, do thy diligence to come before winter. So he's commanded to come. Do thy diligence to come before winter. And then we see here um, in menial labor, 1 Thessalonians 3.8. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3.8. Paul says here, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And he goes on there and gives a curse to those who would not obey his epistle. God has no use for a minister that won't get his hands dirty. Now, there's an extreme that this gets taken to. So we're going to look at a couple other verses and make sure that we get this in its balance. Acts 20, verse 33, Paul speaking to the church elders from Ephesus who came down. And there he called... um, he called these preachers, and this, this is just how it is, elder in the Bible is used synonymously with bishop and pastor sometimes. Sometimes it's used for older men, but in this case, um, it's pretty clear that this is talking about men with the ordained position of elder, not just an older man. There is a difference between the ordained elder or pastor and the um, older man in the church. He says here, 
Acts 20, verse 33, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. And to them that were with me. He says, my hands have ministered to mine own necessities. And he says in verse 35, I have showed you all things how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul was wont to work with his hands. We've observed before that there were times in Paul's ministry when he did not work with his hands and there would be times whenever he would not for wages. But Paul always worked with his hands whether for wages or not. You say, what are you talking about there, Brother Birch? Go back to the book of Acts and let's look at this. You see, we're quick to say that a preacher ought to work because we want the preacher to support himself financially, but not all work pays. And a preacher should work. A preacher that won't work ain't worth his salt. It ain't, he ain't worth his weight in salt. And salt ain't worth much right now in most parts of the world. But here in the book of Acts, um, the apostle Paul is cast on a island. I believe it's chapter 28. Um, well, chapter 27, and then chapter 28, they escaped from the ship, and they were on the island. Paul here is a prisoner. He's being carried as a captive to Rome by the Roman army. He's fed by the Roman army to whatever degree. He's clothed and protected by the Roman army, and he's in bonds by the Roman army. But look at verse 3 of chapter 28 of Acts. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire... And of course, that's where the viper comes out and bites him and he feels no harm and shakes the beast back into the fire and um, that whole account there. But Paul here, what we need to focus in here is that Paul was gathering sticks. Paul was not sitting in some golden throne having everybody kowtow to him and kiss his ring. Paul was gathering sticks. Paul was older than most of those men. Paul had fasted and prayed for those men. Paul had been beat. He had been um, hurt all his life. He'd been stoned. He was probably in more pain than most of those men in that entire group. But while a lot of those men sat around the fire warming themselves and drying their clothes, Paul was gathering sticks. And there's work that has to be done. And not all that work gets pay. Listen to me today. We have perverted this thing to say a preacher has got to have, he's got to earn his own income. And that has about killed us because we've got a lot of churches that don't have good pastors just because of that. Sometimes you don't have, sometimes there are not men that are skilled enough to work a job and shepherd the flock enough to provide an income for their families. But in any case here, let's look at 1 Timothy 5. We'll see a shift here. There is a labor. There's two parts to this labor. There's Well, there's the ministry part, so there's three parts. There's the daily tasks, and there's the menial labor, the physical labor. But then in 1 Timothy 5, we see that there is a labor in the Word. 1 Timothy 5 and 17. Here he says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. 
There is a labor in the word. And right here in this text, the apostle Paul, who said, these hands have ministered to my necessities, says the elders, which are the ordained pastors of the church, the elders that rule well, be counted worthy of double honor. And he says, he gives it in context of money. He says, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. He's saying, you make sure that your preacher who is laboring in the word of God and in doctrine gets the money he needs to live. So there is a balance to this thing. The labor is not necessarily saying a preacher needs a career. A lot of good preachers have been ruined because they would not sacrifice their, the only word I can think of is pecuniary. They would not sacrifice their living. They would not sacrifice their monetary income in order to sell out for God. They were not willing to suffer the potential of being poverty stricken for the word of God. It's killing us in this nation. You say, yeah, but I've seen too many pastors kick their preacher out when he gets old and can't do anything, and I'm not going to get myself in that position. That's your decision. You do what God calls you to do. You be obedient to God. If God wants you to work a full-time job and have a retirement and all that kind of stuff, you obey God. But I'm telling you today, we have lost something in this nation because our people have not have not been willing to support the work of the ministry and the man of God and the man of God has not been willing to risk being supported by fickle, flighty people who are likely to leave him um, without anything on government assistance at the end of his life. And yes, it's, it's all awful. That's We're not going to get into too much of that right now. But that's just to balance this thing out. There is a labor here. Um, 1 Timothy 4.10. Quickly, we're wrapping up. 1 Timothy 4.10, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. And he says there in verse 11, these things command and teach. Commanding, teaching, preaching, this faithful saying of verse 9, this is labor. Verse 6, put the brethren in remembrance. This is labor that he's talking about. And then 2 Timothy 2.6, 2 Timothy 2.6, the husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruit. Well, that, And that's pretty basic. If you starve out your laborer, he won't be there next harvest to harvest your crop for you. 2 Timothy 2.6, 2 Timothy 2.15. Got to move fast. Study to show thyself approved unto God. The Bible says um, that study is weariness of the flesh. Much study is weariness of the flesh. He tells Timothy here, study um, chapter four, verse five. In fact, nowhere in these in these epistles, and um, he says, do the work of an evangelist in four or five. And there's a shift here. Nowhere in first and second Timothy is he commanded to make sure that he labors for money with his hands. It's not in there. Now we know that he learned from the apostle Paul to work hard to be a servant, and if he needed to, to go to work with his hands. And I can't tell you the reason why. We know he had stomach issues there. Maybe he was physically unable to. 
do a menial task to earn a living. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that the Apostle Paul gave him all these charges to labor in the Word of God and in the ministry, and he never once in these particular specific epistles to Timothy commanded Timothy to get a day job to make ends meet. So we're just throwing that out there. That's just part of it to balance it. So he was a fellow laborer. And the purpose, as we've already said, is to establish you concerning the faith, to, com- to comfort you concerning the faith. Look at 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13. He says, um, he says there, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. Hold fast. In 2 Timothy 2, 8, he says, remember, remember. That Jesus Christ, and, it, and that's the gospel there, of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Um, 2 Timothy 3.14, he says, continue, but continue in 2 Timothy 3.14, continue thou in these things. 2 Timothy 4.5, but watch thou in these things. 1 Timothy 4.6 um, deals with this um, in another place in the Bible. I didn't find the text. It says that it is a good thing for the heart to be established in grace, not in meats. And 1 Timothy 4.6 um, 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 says that's where he says if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things thou shalt be a good minister and what is that to be remembered of that every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer he says these people are going to speak lies and hypocrisy forbidding to marry commanding to abstain from meats and there's another forbidding to marry there uh, uh, which is your whole Catholic priesthood there God says these guys are going to speak lies and hypocrisy he nailed them um, um, he says here, these these things are useless. He says, every creature of God is good. Put the brethren of remembrance in these things. It's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. This is the establishment that Timothy was sent to establish the Thessalonica church in. Not in meats, not in rules, but in grace and in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the word of God and of prayer. That's what the church was to be established in. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, and we'll look at the comfort because here Paul is going to carry forward some of that comfort. In 2, Timothy, or 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle, in verse 2, he says that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. So here, Paul would be sending a letter to comfort the church of Thessalonica concerning the faith, which, is also, which was also one of the tasks that Paul had sent Timothy to do. Not to lay on them heavy burdens of a bunch of rules and Sabbath keeping. Listen, Sabbath keeping is a burden that no Christian has to bear at all. If you are keeping the Sabbath to please God, you are in error. It does you no good whatsoever. God is not pleased by it at all. He doesn't care. If you want to have a special day and observance on Saturday, go for it. It won't hurt you any necessarily until you start thinking that it makes you, that it's giving you some kind of holiness or some kind of favor with God because it doesn't. That's the kind of stuff he's saying, listen, you don't need to worry about that stuff. You need to be established in the sanctification of the Holy Ghost, the power of Almighty God through the word of God and prayer establish them, comfort them in these things. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that this message would be used by you. We thank you for this man, Timothy. Help us, Lord, to follow his example. Use us, Lord, in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen.